Hey, I'm Catherine. Hey, and I'm Brian. And we are Thriving, Thriving with, with the, the Bogeynos. On today's episode, we talk with Linda Murphy. Linda shares about her book, The Declarative Language Handbook. Strategies to support communication with learners, families, and professionals. And changing the dialogue around neurodiversity. So grab your handbook, a nice chai tea latte, because we are about to expand your communication horizons. Here we go. Well, thank you for, for being here and, and doing this with um, I just looked at her list she sent you and I was like, <laughs> oh my goodness, this is very overwhelming. I didn't even know about this. This is too much. Uh, I hope she doesn't. I got out. a little excited. Sorry. <laughs> I wanted to start by saying thank you for, for writing this book. Um, ah, thank it's, you. It's um, so amazing and like everything I would have put in a book is in there and it's such, uh, you know, just for doing it uh, over time you see the amazing power this communication style has. Like, I think it is like this hidden secret. I tell Catherine all the time that like, I just want to shout from the rooftops and be like, oh my goodness, everybody, if you just did this, you're, every everything would change, right? And so yeah. it's just uh, amazing. It's awesome. Loved it. And it's, and it's like readable and like practical for like parents to like yes. go through and and it's not very overwhelming and i wish i had it for a lot of times when parents are like so what am i supposed to do or how do i do this and i'm like oh just do, just do this and they'd be like huh and i'm like so this this is great it's a great tool yeah parents yeah, and professionals yeah, yeah i oh, yeah. think working with the professionals we've worked with too um and being able to share this but having a, a tool, you know, just something tangible is really valuable. And um, yeah, so it's really exciting to to be able to read through it and to be able to talk about it and have you on. So thank you. So thank tell you. us tell us about the process. What what kind of what was your inspiration for for actually putting it down and, and writing writing this book, which we should share with everybody? It's called Declarative Language Handbook. Yes. Uh, I'm a speech language pathologist and declarative language is not something I learned about in graduate school for speech therapy. I learned about it as I'm sure you did from um, the RDI community. Mm -hmm. And for me, like you were just saying, it just, it just changes everything when you start to communicate in a different way. Um, and I saw it and I felt it and I started to talk about it. So I became a RDI consultant in 2007 or 2008. Um, so, and I was early, earlier on in my, my career in general, you know, so I think at that time it was just me, a little speech therapist mm -hmm. working with families and in early intervention and just trying to be a good advocate. Um, so I would talk about it with, with families, um, and I wrote some articles for it, like back in 2010, you know, way back there for uh, Autism Spectrum Quarterly. So just little by little, I was trying to get the word out there just because it's not hard to learn. <laughs> you do have to practice because it's not because it's hard to learn, but because it's about habit change and changing habits. Changing a habit is what's hard, not using declarative language. Um, and... So for me, anybody can learn how to do this and is and it is so powerful in so many different ways. And I just I just got tired of I guess like <laughs> waiting for somebody else to decide that it was important because I knew that it was and um and so I just decided to write the book and just get it out there because and I had a good framework already for my articles and I had been had started to do a lot of presentations on declarative language. So I had the information organized in my mind. It was just a matter of putting it out on paper. 
And how much support did you get from Dr. Shillian Goodstein and RDI Connect? And were they, did they have a lot of input into it or was it kind yeah, of like... no, you know what? I just did it. Yeah. I just decided to do it. But where they were really supportive is um, after I had it all ready, I asked Dr. Shealy to review it. And if she, um, if she felt so inclined just to do, to offer an endorsement, but also at the same time, <laughs> I was like, oh gosh, I hope I am doing right by the RDI community, by Dr. Shealy, by Dr. Gutstein, because this is not like I've practiced it a lot. So I feel like I probably think about it a lot more than anybody else in the world because <laughs> I'm just like in it so much. Um, but but it was always, you know, it, I just talk about declarative language is a gift that we give to our kids. But declarative language is a gift that the RDI community gave to me as a clinician, as a parent. And so it was just very important to me to be respectful and give credit where credit's due. Um, so I was just really thrilled that Dr. Shealy really endorsed it. And um, and I do feel it's helping the RDI community. Uh, I, you know, I would hope more people know about RDI because of my book. Yeah. And so you have this book, the Declarative Language Handbook, and you also have the, is it the Co-Regulation Handbook? Mm-hmm. Yes. I love it. Yeah. And you said it's it's, it's easy to learn, but I, I'll tell you. So I did straight ABA for 10 years before joining uh, and getting my RDI consultant certification. And so for me, I was just, what's your name? What's your favorite color? Do this, do this, do this. And so that was my like trading. And so it took me uh, like a, honestly a good year practicing all the time, every time doing the videos, getting feedback, practicing it. And so I kind of went through that and kind of had that frustration and would catch myself. And But then once I got it and you see the power it brings and, and what, it, what I liked about it is something I can do that will allow a more higher access to, to learning and, and kind of more supportive environment, right? Where I wasn't just barking orders and giving instructions, you know, because at, at the end of the day, you know, a lot of our people we work with, you know, get, I, I tell parents, hundreds, right? Hundreds of instructions and directions every day, all day. And eventually, you know, all of us, I say, you know, nobody likes to be told what to do, right? And so we eventually all kind of push back. And so this was an awesome way where we can kind of not tell them anything to do really, but provide some guidance and insight and kind of in that declarative way that allowed us. So once I got through that, it was frustrating when you see, you know, I go into schools or you see parents and it's just the orders and barking and, and, and directive nonstop. And it's, and it's based. so obvious yeah. to, to all of us, I'm sure now that it's like, it's so hard to watch even my former self and what I used to do. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's like, how do you not see it? But I guess I was there when I, when I didn't. Right. See it, right. So to add on to that, I was only in the very traditional ABA world for two years and then I found RDI and it changed everything for me. And so all that time I was trying to pull him over into our world. And it, <laughs> it, yeah, it was it was great to see that you stepped over. But to sh now it's really important to me and I feel like to you too. And it sounds like to you to share this with not only the families and the parents that we work with, but the professionals in the field to help make that shift. And I know there is a shift in the uh, behavior analysis field to a more... Um, compassionate approach, a more um, affirming approach, more trauma sensitive or trauma informed, um, looking at assent versus and, and consent versus just this forced compliance model that has been used for so long. So maybe you could share a little bit with us about um, some of your concerns for the use of this book in in different fields that it might get mis misused or misinterpreted. Um, 
especially as we go into sharing this with other BCBAs and other behavior analysts, what what are your, some of your concerns and what are maybe some examples that you've seen it kind of take the wrong path? Well, I, and I want to comment too, Brian, you were making me think of something and I think it all, it all comes together. But um, I talk about this in my book and like I say it from time to time, but when I was doing my RDI training, one of the things that Dr. Gutstein said was, we need to get rid of the gut. You have to get rid of the gut. And that for me was life-changing because I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm constantly trying to guess. As a speech therapist, I'm trying to get kids to talk. I'm trying to get them to do something. I'm trying to get them to show me, like, I'm a good teacher. I can get you to do this. I think that is like the foundation of everything is we have to get rid of the get. And my experience of ABA is it's all about the get. Like, that's, you know, I, I look forward to being around ABA. That's not about the get. But I feel like ABA is constantly trying to get individuals to do something and and then take data on what we've gotten them to do to prove that they're learning. Yeah, and it's like, do we really need to see evidence that they're learning? Like, is it possible that individuals learn without it being obvious to us? I, you know, I think, I'm sorry, I'm going to go, I'm not going on tangents, but I even think of some non, non-speaking individuals. ABA, in my experience, is very much that in order to trust that an individual is learning, we have to be able to see it through our neurotypical eyes. But, but And that's a concern for me because I believe there's lots of ways that individuals learn and we might not necessarily see it because we're not inside their brain and we're not inside their body. Um, and there is, you know, I, I think about Ido Kadar or um, I'm blanking on her last name, but Jordan, the non-speaking. In my experience, I've seen that in order for ABA providers to trust that an individual is learning, they have to be able to see it it through neurotypical eyes, like through an action, through a verbal response. Um, and I feel like that's not fair because there's lots of ways that people are learning and we can't see it because we're not inside their brain and we're not inside their body. A movie, I think it's called This Is Not About Me, that just really show it's different for non-speaking individuals. And if we assume that they're not learning because they can't show us in the way that that we maybe would show, then we don't, then, then we stay at this really low level of teaching that doesn't give them credit or doesn't assume competence. So I feel like maybe that that's a concern is um, when it's, when there's very directive teaching that's, that's focused on the get, it doesn't presume competence mm-hmm. for individuals. Mm-hmm. So, and I could go on about that, but I know that's not really related to declarative language. So, but when I think about like, okay, if we bring this into declarative language, I don't ever want anybody to use declarative language in a, in a way that you're trying to get like, of course, we want, like how I view it is, I want to use declarative language to connect, to experience share, to guide, to invite opportunities for problem solving and skill building. But I always want to do that in partnership with the individual and meet them where they're at in the moment, Mm -hmm. not as a drill sergeant or um, like a didactic teacher who's telling them what to do. you know, very much in partnership, like the RDI community Mm -hmm. Or even even in the, uh, I've seen it used 
in like the passive aggressive way where mm-hmm. I'm wondering yeah. if you're going to do your homework in five minutes, you know, and like, right. I was like, oh, right. that's a good I statement, but nerd, yeah, yeah. that's very, right. That's and, a good and example. So, <laughs> Yeah. And I, um, so then I guess the other pieces, and I wrote this and it's on my website. It's just guiding principles that I think about when using declarative language along with the concept of co-regulation is just, it's not just about our words, but it's about our whole communicative presence and that we have to have a presence that gives, that's generous, that gives our learners the benefit of the doubt, that presumes competence and that is dynamic. So, you know, say for example, we do invite a learner to problem solve or take initiative by saying, I wonder if you've done your homework. (laughs) And we say that with positive intention, if they don't move, then that's our signal to scaffold a bit more, not place greater demands or make them do it or figure out what we need to do to get them to, to get it moving. It's more our signal that, okay, there's a breakdown here. Let me, let me figure out how I can scaffold this so that this opportunity is successful, whatever it might be. Can you tell us before we get too far, like what is declarative language for those that don't know or maybe haven't read the book? And yeah, how would you? I, I mean, it's hard to sum up, but how would how would you sum it up or share with share with yeah. our listeners? Totally. And you know what? Sometimes what I think is easier is I'll talk about what it's not and then get into what it is. So um, the opposite of declarative. A declarative statement is an imperative, and an imperative is just a command. So that asks someone to do something or say something very specific, and there's a right or wrong answer. So it might be um, stand up, put on your coat, do your homework, get your shoes. So those are all imperatives. Declarative language is also not a question. Um, Question So imperative, let me just back up to imperative places a demand in the moment. And one thing that I think is always important to keep in mind is that demands can cause stress, especially when our learners are vulnerable or they may not feel competent. Um, So and stress can lead to um, maybe fight, flight, freeze responses, which in the end look like challenging behaviors, which perhaps then people go down the road of a behavior plan. And I'm always like, well, if you just don't use the imperative (laughs) to begin with, like things could probably develop in a different manner. Um, And then declarative language is also not a question. So questions also place a demand. So that could be something like, what should you be doing right now? What do you read? What do you need? What's your name? So where you're placing a demand on someone very specifically to come up with an answer or to formulate language. And that also can be really hard um, for our learners and cause stress if we're asking them to recall information, retrieve vocabulary, formulate a response. It's a lot of demands. Um, so those can all be hard. They can break engagement, cause disruption in our connection. Um, and it might be hard to get that connection back um, because it's it's communication that's not also not just based on the relationship as your foundation, which supports continued engagement as things get hard, like things are going to get hard. So if you don't have that good connection as your foundation, then when there's a rupture or a breakdown, it's it's not going to be, um, the child might not come back willingly, you know, and then it becomes another get. How am I going to get them back? How am I going to get their attention? So 
having said all that, <laughs> then declarative language is just a comment. So we're commenting maybe on the here and now, what we see. Maybe we're, we're commenting on a memory that we share together. Maybe we're commenting on an idea that we have. Maybe we're commenting on an opinion. But you're just really and truly generously giving information to the learner. learner in the form of a comment. The comment doesn't place a demand. Um, and then you just, it's really important to leave space on the other side so that our learner can think and process what we said, which then helps us know, okay, did they understand what I said or might I need to give a little more information to scaffold and guide whatever it is that we're thinking about together or are they just thinking and it's okay that we're quiet together. That's also never a bad thing. I always, I always relate to it to like going into an interview and, then, and people will say, oh yeah, I get nervous. And why? Because they're asking you a question <laughs> and you have to come up with the right answer, right? And that's stressful for all of us, right? That, that's that's a chaotic, yeah. stressful environment. And, and, right. and nobody learns well in that environment. So uh, that's mm -hmm. kind of my connection that I always share. Right. Like, th th it's miserable. And they're getting interviewed every day, all day. But we right. are the ones generally with more experience and knowledge and, and education. And why aren't we sharing that? Why aren't we giving that to them for free? Instead, we're testing them to see what mm -hmm. they know. So then we could teach them. Right? Like It, it doesn't make sense. Right, it's right. backwards. And then I guess I was just thinking if it's okay, I can add in just when you said, like, what are some things that, that I might be concerned about? Um, I feel like a very common question is that, oh, um, my learner their comprehension is low and they're not going to, they're not, declarative language is too wordy or it's too long or they're not going to be able to access this. And I just want to say that is absolutely not true. And that's an example where we're not presuming comp competence. Um, yeah. And there's lots of communication that all learners understand because it, it's never just about the words. It's about, as I said, our whole communicative presence. So, um, so even though it may seem like they're not understanding all the words that we're saying, we're, we're scaffolding and supplementing that with the context, with our nonverbal communication, with our emotional connection. So it doesn't matter who that learner is. You can always speak in this more respectful way that invites versus places demands. Yes. Yeah, that is so important. And the, the invitation yeah, versus the demand and that presuming competence is just Huge. It's everything. Yeah. And I it's I got feedback actually from a speech language pathologist. I was working with a kiddo and their family and I went to overlap. She gave me that feedback that it was too much, too many words. Um, and he wasn't going to understand it because yeah, he was nonverbal. And she was using like one to two word, very robotic sounding statements. And he just shut down and um, went into fight or flight. Right. He's he would try to leave the room, clearly showing his, his discomfort with this and his um, reaction to it. But when I would use my two wordy statements and declarative invitations and presume competence, he was completely different and he was engaged and he was uh, participating and interested and leaning in. And um, so I just wanted to share that because I actually got that feedback. Um, and it's just so interesting, that mindset. Um, yeah, pe people get that funny voice. Hi, how 
are you? I yeah. said, right. you talk to me that way? You know, Sit down. I, yeah, I'm, Good I, job. I'm, I'm like <laughs> out of here. If yeah. you're like, so, you know, like, mm-hmm. well, what, why? It, it's just like this thing that people, I don't know where right. it comes from or like trained who teaches into, that. But right. like, you know, that yeah. for me, the, the presumed confident, confidence, but also the, well, I think a big changing point like you had with the, you know, get, not stop trying to get something from mm-hmm. them was the, the perspective taking, right? I think early on in my career, I was trying to get them to see my perspective. And when I mm. took a moment and what's it like for them and, and kind of used information from the environment and what they were sharing and really thought about it and then used that to support their higher access to, to more learning, it just took off and it was just so much more easier. And we were in this kind of dance and, and I wasn't telling them what to do. And mm-hmm. that's the other thing I get from parents is, you know, well, they'll never do anything if you don't tell them what to do. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, one, nobody wants to be told what to do. You know, no, nobody likes that. But two, there is so much more independence and, and intrinsic motivation when they're given this platform, this environment, and then they can choose to do it given your your guidance, right? And and, and like, I, I, we can do anything without any reinforcement. Well, you know, whatever we wanted to do, but using you know, the, these tools that, we, that we've learned, right? We can wash the windows without ever telling them to wash the windows. You know, like, oh, look, there's a dirty spot. I'm going to get over here. And then you'd see them grab it and clean over there all by themselves. And it was like, nobody even told them what to do. And they're just like, they're, ga- they're gaining their independence and their, their, uh, right, their problem solving you talk about in the book. So it's, it's, it's so incredible. I'm fired up. <laughs> I love this stuff. It's so like sad to see, go into any school, right? Or any grocery store. That's all you see is the imperative language. Get your, do, do this, do that and do this. And I love how you said on your website, it's harder with your own kids because I am that person with my own kids. And I'm like, no, why am I doing it? I can do it with with clients all day long, mm-hmm. but you know whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and in the rush in the morning, you mentioned of like, yeah, totally. That's, that's the that's the trick yep. for us. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. Well, I was just thinking about how this related to you know I know you mentioned about the neurodiversity affirming practices, and that was really important to you. And I think th- that links into this this um, invitation and presuming confidence and and perspective taking, like Brian mentioned. And so, do you want to share a little bit about that and um yeah your experience and why it's so important in our field yeah i mean i think like all of us we're listening a lot of autistic individuals are talking more i think especially since 2020 um i'm not autistic i you know, i work with individuals with social learning differences but and i'm doing my best based on what i see in the moment um but but I always want to be listening to to the autistic community so that I'm always respectful, humble, you know, just learning from the things that they're saying so that I know I'm on the right track um, in terms of just supporting personal agency and um, whatever else it might be. Like positively, I have had autistic Mm -hmm. individuals tell me that this is very neurodiversity affirming. So what I'm doing with declarative language or even at my practice in working with clients. Mm -hmm. So so I feel like, okay, I'm on the right track. I was like, phew. okay. I'm like, I thought it was because it felt respectful to me, but I'm not autistic. And um, yeah, so so I so I'm, you know, but I'm still, of course, growing. I'm not done learning. I'm not done listening, I think. And and my goal is just to continue to always listen and evolve how I speak and how I write so that 
I stay respectful, stay neurodiversity affirming. Um, I think it lines up just with my values as a clinician. Like I, I care about the relationship first. I care about the emotional connection. I want to meet people where they're at. Um, so I feel like I, I can do that. Like it, it works well. Um, how come, how come so many people are missing it? Like how, I think about that a lot. Like how to, in the moment it, it's now, I'm sure you see, right. And it's just so, it's, it's, it's so hard to even watch, right? Like what's missing? Like, why are they, why, why, why is it so, you know, I'm here to teach them and, and I know, is that the mindset you think people are coming in with that, that creates or? Yeah. Well, and so in my little bubble, I have a practice and we're all, we do declarative language, co-regulation. So I'm around a community of neurodiversity affirming clinicians a lot. So you, I think, see the other side that I do see, but maybe not as much as you. Um, I think that, uh, well, who knows? It, it depends on the people that we're around, our openness to thinking in a different way. Um, you know, even you trying to connect with BCBAs out there to show there's a different way. Like we don't have to, we can let go of the compliance and whatever else. Um, so it might just be a matter of meeting one person who speaks in a different way about all of this that, and then they, other people start to just think about it or seeds are planted so that they can start to think and try things in a different way and see how, how much it feels different um, but I do think just in the literature or in research, like there's just so often negative terms used with to describe um, autistic individuals. So, so the language that we use, I think, really matters. Also, I there's some articles that I just love. I love to go back to. I love to give them to graduate students. But it's called um, they're by Barry Prezant and. It's something to the effect of the language we use matters. So it matters even in terms of how we're describing the individuals that we're with. Um, like my latest thing is, uh, you know, we could, call, we could call them rigid or we could say, you know what? They need more processing time than I do um, because that's like a blog, a blog post series that I wrote recently and just tried to dive deep into that because in my experience, kids initially might seem like they're not mm -hmm. flexible, but it's really just that stress response and that protective response to new or different information. But if you, if you take it slow, if you give them time to process, you, you, you know, whatever it might be, like what, how long an individual might need to process information is going to vary based on the individual, but it's going to be, and it's probably going to be different from me. So just their ability to hear a new piece of information, integrate it within their greater understanding of the world and their experiences, and then be able to respond to it thoughtfully. Like in my experience and using the strategies that I do, I see people be very flexible. Like I'm not ever, I'm not ever going to use that word rigid to describe a learner. I'm just not. I'm going to say, this is new information. They feel unsure and uncertain because um, they haven't yet had experience with this. I'm going to respect that they need more time and I'm going to go really slow so that they know all their questions are answered. They can think ahead a little bit. They can feel comfortable. They know they'll be competent. Um, and I just think in our field, people don't talk like that. People just go quick to the one-liners or the quick labels, like they're rigid, they're stubborn. 
um, you know, they only want to do their agenda. And, and I just don't think that's true. But if that's how everybody's talking about people, then, then how you're going to approach them is different. You're not necessarily going to approach that person with understanding or empathy or connection or patience or um, just acceptance that the timeline might be different than than it might be for another person. So I think mm-hmm. that's a big part of it, just how we talk about how we talk about our learners and thinking about that. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And the, the, the people that you're around and how you're talking about it. And, and I think, you know, going back to what you were saying, Brian, of yeah, how, how is that still happening? But if they're if you're surrounded by people who are still labeling in that way, and that they're still yeah. um, instructing people in that way, and, and just having that that mindset, then it is it's like, Oh, well, this is just the way it is. And they don't often see right. another way until something they meet that one person, like you said, that plants a seed, or you have a community yeah. like we both in California, we're working for companies that had RDI consultants that also did other things and that blended things together. And they saw that bigger picture and everybody that came on board had that mindset of, um, you know, meeting them, meeting the person where they're at and a collaborative approach and perspective taking and presuming competence. And, um, so that was the culture. And I think that, that, what you're saying is so true yeah it's this automatic right and it's a very mindful process to slow down which i love that you add that that whole chapter into the book because that is such a huge thing mm-hmm. people get so uncomfortable and so impatient and just waiting and slowing down mm-hmm. changes everything it allows room for participation right and you're when you keep asking and asking and asking it's almost they're resetting their brain and the res- they can't even process because you're just overwhelming them and chaotic mm-hmm. but so my question how do you work with parents and how do you how do you guide them or support their learning of this kind of language process? Yeah, well, I think it helps when parents are coming to the table because they want to change up their communication style, like they see the value in it. I think it's hard to to come in with my agenda if if a caregiver is not there yet. You know, like I can't get them to change either. So I think if it's someone that comes in really imperative and question asking, I'm just going to try and do my very best to model um, and and maybe have opportunity after the fact just to model and discuss what I'm doing, but not necessarily point out what they're doing, because part of it, right, too, is we want self we want to support self-awareness. and ownership and reflection. So, so if I can say, well, here's what I'm thinking. I notice when I use comments, um, your child stays with me. They stay more engaged, um, and it's okay with me if they don't respond. I'm, I don't, I'm not going for talking. I'm just going for sustained engagement over time. And I notice that they're staying connected to me when I'm using this commenting and giving them time um, to, to think about, you know, what they want to say back if they want to say back. So I just really try and spotlight what I'm doing and maybe even the moments that I saw it was really powerful or supportive for the learner so that maybe the parent can start to think about their own communication style. You know, I might say, I'm not going to ask any questions because right now I just really want us to support. um, I just really want to support our connection with each other. So I'm not going to, you know, I could say stuff like this, like I'm not going to place any demands on them because 
we don't know each other. Our connection is fragile. I'm just working on staying connected to them. So these are the things I'm thinking about and I'm doing while I'm with your child. Um, and I find that sticking to comments is really helpful. So then usually then too, the parent or caregiver might be like, I ask questions all day. And I was like, okay, that well, that's interesting. You know, I invite you to, you know, give commenting a try and see how it feels. Um, because I, I talk about that too. It's just, I don't expect anybody to change all at once because that's really hard. I just, mm -hmm. I feel like the first step is just awareness of your own communication. So if you notice you ask a lot of questions, then that's awesome because then you're in a place to do it in a different way and play around with um, how that feels, um, you know, and if it sustains your connection. And the other thing too is I do feel like as soon as parents or care caregivers give it a try they're like whoa mm -hmm. I had no idea you know it didn't work every time but it worked enough for me to realize there's something here mm -hmm. um, and I want to try <laughs> I want to try some of that yes. so yeah yeah I think and I feel like yeah and I'm sorry I didn't need to interrupt um, yeah and the parents who are caregivers who are just a little further along then it's like okay let's go deeper and let's think about how to troubleshoot or how to bring in other concepts Mm -hmm. um, you know, to support learning or problem solving or recalling memories together. Or allow so, contrib yeah. learner contribution that may be different mm -hmm. than yours, right? Yes. And that's, right. we often will totally. cut them off because that's not my way, but there's many different ways to do almost anything. And so allowing mm -hmm. them to make contributions is, is, is just creates so much more space for comfort and right and right yeah and i think that goes back to what you were saying in the very beginning about measuring it from our own perspective versus what what they're truly contributing right it might not be mm -hmm. what we had planned or what we see from our perspective as them learning or contributing but yeah when you open that door up and have a different mindset about it um yeah they might say something yeah. or do something we didn't even think of and it's like oh well cool i didn't think about that yeah. And when you when you turn it around, though, and um, if you were like, want to go replace the car carburetor in my engine, right? <laughs> you'd be like, huh? And that's really what a lot of times what we're what the expectations we're putting on a lot of our, our people we work with, our clients, right? And we would have the same response, too. It's like they don't know this. How can we expect them to know this? Why are we just test testing mm -hmm. them? And that's such a, a, mm -hmm. a comfortable feeling that just needs to needs to be changed it's like why do we need to test up front to say oh you're wrong oh, well let me show you how to do it because i'm right and i know how to do it like that that's right that's mm -hmm. terrible so we're talking a lot about a lot of the pros and all the benefits that we've seen because we've all experienced it right and we've we've been using it for so long have you seen any cons to using this approach any negatives yeah no, yeah. I haven't. <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> I think um, I think there's um, like obstacles depending on the moment, depending on the learner. So it becomes a matter of navigating those in the moment while staying true to um, your connection. Mm -hmm. So not getting to the get, <laughs> but more so when there's a moment to troubleshoot or an obstacle or you feel like you're you're not sure what to do. Um, it's just thinking about, okay, how, how do I respond in a way that keeps me present in the moment, that meets my learner where they're at. I stay about our connection. I don't try and get. Um, so even the concept that I think about there is just breakdowns and repairs. Like how do you, 
how do you support a repair or how do you work towards a repair when there's been a breakdown of some sort? Um, and, and I think, but you can get at all this stuff with declarative language, mm -hmm. which it could be a little breakdown. Like I didn't hear what you said. Can you say that again? Or it could be a really big breakdown where we totally misunderstood each other and are not happy with each other. Um, but I know with declarative language, you can, no matter what the breakdown is, you can always circle back and repair, which is the dynamic part of communication, which is the part that's really important because communication's not perfect. Um, so I feel like that's even the skill that we can get at with declarative language. So I think the drawbacks are only when people, um, use it in a passive aggressive way. Like I don't like that. And that makes me sad when I see it. <laughs> And it can be hard for me to know how to, um, how, it can be hard for me to, how, to know how to be a good coach in that moment to guide that communicator toward a more positive use of it. But, but that's, you know, everybody's journey. Like that's for me to figure out in the moment, how do I, how do I do that in a way that's respectful to this caregiver so that I can kind of show them what I know while not breaking my connection with them or making mm. them feel bad. Yeah. So that's a challenge. Yeah. yeah. But I just think it always just builds on, on positive intentions. It's, it's about building and deepening your relationship over time. So that's all good stuff. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Have you, so you started off as a speech language pathologist and then, um, got your RDI consultant certification, right? Mm -hmm. Um, did you receive any backlash or, um, have any challenges with that in the speech therapy community? Yeah, no, not at all. Like, I think it's very complementary to speech therapy, even though not all speech therapists have this lens that I do and RDI consultant speech therapists do. Um, so I feel like in the, in the speech community, there's definitely a lot of us that think in this way that this work and, and these concepts really resonate. Um, but at the same time, we meet speech therapists who are trained under the ABA type of model. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I know I said this before, um, well, I was talking about Barry Prezant, mm -hmm. but I just love his work. And he was one of my professors when I was in graduate school. So mm -hmm. So it's always been. He's at Rhode Island, right? Or is it? Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I've just been. I feel as though he's been one of my mentors and guides. Um, you know, indirectly yeah. for a very for a long time. He, he spoke. We did the um, Love and Autism conference out in San Diego, and he was one of the. Oh yeah. One, one, of, the, one of the. That was a long time ago, though, right? That was. We did it for yeah. five, six years, and it stopped pre-COVID. Um, but he was one of the initial, not I would say second or third year he came and yeah, really, really great stuff. Yeah. Uh, I forgot about that conference. Mm -hmm. That was a nice one. Yeah. They did the first, we did, a, they had a wedding, uh, there oh, yeah. one year, which that is really funny. Cool. And, mm -hmm. uh, that was the ultimate, I think of, for us out there, you know, changing the language, you know, mm -hmm. and it was a, uh, it was yeah. a conference, uh, you know, all the speakers had autism and it was just hearing yeah. them, what it, their perspective, them sharing instead of, you know, researchers telling us what they're feeling or what they should learn or know. And so yeah. uh, I think that that was our, our, our little piece of contributing to how do we change this narrative, mm -hmm. right? So that was, mm -hmm. that was really cool. Yeah that, yeah, that was always really inspiring, yeah, to go to those. Yeah, and I was thinking, I do have, this isn't, um, this is more, it might be relevant to, to the ABA providers or the BCBAs out there, 
um, just the idea of data and how do you collect data with respect to just changing up your community? Like, okay, if we're not going to try and get kids to do stuff, then how do we measure mm-hmm. <laughs> what they have done? Um, and, and even, I don't, I know how I think about it, but I think this is a nice challenge to your field or the field of ABA, um, just to get creative and think about how you might measure progress in a different way. Because I think I let go of data in the moment data a very long time ago, because I felt that if I'm sitting there with a clipboard and taking notes on a child when I'm with them, then our communication is no longer authentic. It's not dynamic. And I have this yucky thing, a clipboard in between us that's interrupting the flow of our communication. Um, So, you know, in the RDI world, we might use videotaping and that's a really nice way to measure progress over time if you just do a snapshot video every so often. Um, So I don't know. So mostly I'm just throwing that out there because I acknowledge that in the BCBA world, data is important, um, and and I invite your learners to think about how they might be able to creatively measure progress that doesn't depersonalize the the student or the learner that you're with, or doesn't you know boil them down just to numbers on a page, or fragment their skills so much that it's it's not true communication anymore. And but I think navigating that well justifying to insurance to get funding is kind of the the challenge and having the requirements and pushing back on that and definitely yeah that's the challenge with the funders and the you know trying to get the services that the the individual and the families need and justifying but then and i think what we found was that when we were doing more we called them naturalistic aba programs which i know can still also be an offensive way to put it um but we really infused it with those the RDI type um, strategies with the co-regulation, the declarative language, the reducing the demand. But I think it came in writing the goals differently. And we had to write them in a measurable, observable way, but in a much more RDI type way and natural way and so that we could track them. Writing the goals differently helped us then to track it differently and not have to have that clipboard or their nice. computer or mm-hmm. the yeah. tablet. And that's feedback. Or even us too pushing back and I'd go mm-hmm. to peer reviews and, <sighs> and with the insurance companies and talk to them and, and, and advocate for the, and they'd be like, yeah, yeah you know, you're right. And, and, and uh, just, just even pushing back and, and kind of, you know, not science is growing and learning and, and making a hypothesis and get and, and I think it uh, research takes time you know and that takes you know mm-hmm. evidence and then funding for that takes even longer so I think we're you know it's it's been a long time for Felix since you know even you've been doing this as well but mm-hmm. um it's slow you know it's it's slow to catch yeah. up it's frustrating I, I I do appreciate your um vulnerability in in the end of your book saying i'd love to do research i'm not quite mm-hmm. sure how to do it any help would be appreciated <laughs> and i'm kind of in that same boat too but so I, I love that you added that in but i wanted to ask have you gotten anywhere or done anything or, or started oh. from from that thank you for asking so i feel like i just you throw these things out to the universe and eventually like it finds it way its way back to you so um excitingly i have met Um, a researcher who is autistic, who has told me, you know, these things are very neurodiversity affirming. 
um, and she wants to help get some research done. So we have a couple of ideas that we're playing around with. But like you said, it's it's just it takes time. And I'm like, I'm OK with that. I know it takes time. Um, so so we're just in the thinking stages right now. But I have I have someone that I'm connected to um, that's that believes in in this and has the capability for the research and the, the capability and the knowledge to actually do research. So I can bring my ideas and then I'm hoping we can work together to figure this out <laughs> and just get started. I know it's just one little, one little bit at a time, but, um, but that's what you start where you start. Yeah. 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 Awesome. There you go. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's definitely needed. Mm-hmm. I think that, that helps to back everything that we already know to be true. Right. You know, and there, I mean, there, and Dr. Gutstein has done some, 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 he's has, he has, he does have a lot of literature and, you know, Dr. Hobson had, had done some and was doing more. And, um, I, there was one website I found where it was like a list of all the different articles that had some kind of relational based, mm-hmm. I don't know if it was REI specific, but it was definitely mm-hmm. relational based. And, um, I think there, there is, there is a, a lot out there if you look at it and, and I think it's just organizing and figuring out and yeah, that's, it's mm-hmm. beyond my scope of practice for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the scientific methods. Oh man, <laughs> writing an abstract, uh, that's, that's <laughs> not of my zone for sure. I don't know. That's exciting. That we we love an update on that. Any research or anything that's yeah. or any new books coming? What's what's the next book? Oh yeah. So oh, that one I have one. more control yeah. over. I feel like I just have to not procrastinate. <laughs> but <laughs> but I do. I have a third book that I it's been in my mind for a while, and I just needed to feel like okay, I know what I want to write. Um, and then I just have to do it. So I have my outline. I wrote chapter one for, of my rough draft. Like it's all going to take a little bit of time. But um, what I want to write about or what I envision this to be is a book that just tells people how to combine the two concepts of declarative language and co-regulation because I never use one without the other. Like they're always both there for me. Um, and secondly, just across the lifespan because the the first books um you know they have kids in the title but really you know these concepts are good regardless of age Mm -hmm. so i really just want to talk about how you can apply these concepts across the lifespan so from tweens to teens to maybe young adults Mm -hmm. who have been labeled failure to launch um and even for elderly who might have dementia i think these concepts are really uh respectful and and empowering and connecting um so that's what i want to do i just want to bring it up to the next level and a an adult that i work with um who i've known for a a very long time it this actually is a request of his mom she said will you write a book for adults (laughs) so i said okay and that was probably you know not quite a year ago Mm -hmm. but I'm finally buckling down. I feel ready. <laughs> I love that. So, yeah. I think that's definitely really very necessary. And I, we've recently both just started um, here in Virginia working with a lot more adults and anywhere from 18 to 40, you know, and, and I think it having those tools for that population that, you know, kind of gets left out of, you know, everything's so mm-hmm. focused on kids and teens and young adults, but yeah, across the lifespan. I love that. And for elderly. Um, yeah. So yeah, we are definitely looking forward to that. Any words of wisdom or people who want to practice or, or, or do more or um, learn more about it? I guess what, where can they 
go or what can they yeah. do? Obviously, check out your book, Declarative Language Handbook. Get it on yeah. Amazon, right? Or any, anywhere books are sold. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah. Um, my main website is declarativelanguage.com. So I have a lot of resources on there. I have a blog. I have blog posts categorized by different topics that might be important, like frequently asked questions, challenging behaviors, peer interaction, episodic memory, um, just things that we like to think about all the time. Um, I have some handouts on there. There's recordings on there. So depending on how you like to learn, whether it's reading or listening, there's a bunch there. Um, The handouts too are just sometimes just a quick quick visual, like a declarative language cheat sheet, or um, my guiding principles are a handout or a download that you can print and hang somewhere. Um, So that's the best place to go. And then, yeah, words of wisdom. I think I always just say there's a blog post under um, declarative language FAQs, and it's Call and it was. It's called. I think. How do I get started? Is the question. And then the blog post is called One Exchange at a Time. So, so I just always tell people, you know, don't feel like you need to change everything right away. You just start start to listen to yourself. That's the first step. <laughs> yes. And then just start start to play around with times that maybe instead of a demand or a question, you could phrase things as a comment instead. Um, and just take it one exchange at a time. So you don't have to plan it could just be like okay in this moment in time do I feel like I have the the presence that I need and the time that I need to make a comment rather than a demand so it might not be when you're rushing mm-hmm. to get out the door in the morning that not be might not be the first place you want to try it might be when you're driving in the car and you have time or you're lying down next to your child at bedtime and looking at a book together and just think about commenting rather than asking a question i always framed it like share so. share what's in your mind externally because mm-hmm. we assume they know what's in our mind and right. when we just outwardly play, play that right you're in the car i'm not sure what we should have for dinner tonight right and then wait and it's a magical you get mm-hmm. what, what what you get back right but when we are generally teaching it's oh it's it's just one way you know and so we never share so i always encourage people share um your favorite song your favorite music your um yeah anything else that you feel like is important to share um about your work or this book no i i would just say to your listeners thank you for being here thank you for being open give it a try yeah that's all and it's one exchange at a time we're just planting seeds so that other people can can know what we know um because I always think just once you're on the other side, you never go back. So, right. yeah. yeah. So I just right. appreciate anybody who's thinking about think uh, communicating in a different way. Mm-hmm. And we support them. Right? Yes. Awesome. Yes. 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 Awesome. Mm-hmm. This has been great. Yeah. Linda, you're awesome. Thank you so much yeah. for joining us. Yes. Yeah. It. Thank you for asking me. Keep planting your seeds and we'll yes. try to... No kidding. Yeah. One, Spread them. <laughs> one, one interaction at a time. And, yeah. you know, that's, I know. That's what I always say. There's, there's, there's teachable moments every, almost every second of every day. And just finding a little mm-hmm. bit here and there and watching them grow, it, it does create a long-lasting effect. So we appreciate yeah. all your work you do, and thank you.